Hi everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry and back with me today I've got Belle and Indy from Somex and a special guest this week, the return of Nick Ross from Kavanaugh Health. Nick, how are you doing? Very good, very good and thanks for having me back. I pretty much self-invited myself for this one, so um, thanks. Quite all right. Uh, it's always good to have guests who want to come back. It says that we're either doing a good job or you've got nothing to do on a Friday morning, which I know from working closely with you is not true. <laughs> um, also, we haven't scared you off because often the wormholes that we go into in this podcast would, <laughs> would frighten off a lot of people. Well, I fear, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much editing, editing had to be done to the last one that was on, um, but it was good fun. I enjoyed it. It was absolutely fine. <laughs> um, what a year to start, right? I thought it was, um, so we saw JP Morgan's just come to an end and just the good news keeps on flowing. It's pretty much, it's been the theme. Everyone seems very positive. Optimism is back. Um, the pessimism seems to be behind us. Bring on 2023. Oh, what a starter. Optimism is back. It is odd, isn't it? Because 20, 2022 coming off the back of everything we saw in 2020 and 2021 in terms of investment, Twenty. 22 was a little bit like, oh, everything's broken and nothing's as good as it used to be and no one's raising money anymore. And it just feels like we've flipped onto January the 1st. Everyone's like, no, no, we're good now. The, the world is fine again and we're just going to... Ra- like, the number of raises coming out, the number of people talking about potential IPOs is... That's fantastic. Cool. All right, uh, Belle, Indy, how have uh, how have your weeks been? Good. Um, I think we were just talking about how it's it's really nice to be in the second week of January because the first week is just a flurry of what did we leave over the Christmas break. Um, so nice to be back into the swing of it, seeing clients. Um, it's been a really good week for us. Um, so yeah, exciting and exciting to do my first Pigeon podcast of 2023. Yeah, I, I feel like the first week of January should probably just be barred. Just, just get rid of it and then we can just start sure. on the second week <laughs> and then that would make life a lot easier. Indy, how's your week been? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Busy, busy, but fun, busy. Lots of exciting things happening. Yeah, reiterating Belle's point, I feel back in the game, a little bit more switched on. So yeah, excited for the rest of the year. Happy days. So <laughs> Optimism is um, back on the Somex team too. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right, shall we crack on with some health tech and biotech news? Okay, we're going to start this week with a story from Peer.io, which is seven tips for breaking into health tech. Everyone who works at Somex gets a lot of messages on at least a weekly basis asking, how do I get into health tech? I'm a med student or I'm a doctor or I'm a nurse or I'm some other healthcare professional or NHS worker who wants to move into health tech or biotech. Um, And it's really hard to offer advice because no situation is the same and no path into health tech is ever the same but everyone who is on this call has in some way got into health tech or biotech um so we thought as well as uh, peer's excellent article on the seven tips for breaking into health tech it might be interesting to hear individual stories from people uh indy you've uh, you've come into health tech straight out of university how did you find it here and why did you want to work in health tech yeah i i did and you know what this article really really resonated with me because when I was sort of starting to learn about health tech and digital health and med tech and what all those different um, sort of sectors meant, it felt to me like it was this sort of really intriguing but difficult to get into bubble. And I was sort of 
clutching its jaws as, you know, how can I worm my way in there, so to speak? Um, and in actual fact, once you sort of do make that jump and, and start to understand the industry a little bit more, I think everyone here will agree it's actually a lot smaller um, than you think and a lot of people sort of know everyone else. And um, I think my main advice or my own personal experience um, is really thinking about the reasons why you personally want to make that jump. It's going to be different for everyone, um, but sort of looking ahead into the long term and, and thinking, what are my personal goals and how can that sort of align with health tech and, and why is it that health tech interests me? And I think that will then naturally translate into the next steps that you make. Um, so for me, that was being really proactive on things like LinkedIn and sort of having the confidence to put myself out there a little bit more, start making sort of posts, commenting on different um, articles I've found interesting, even if I wasn't that confident that, you know, I was a complete expert in that, in that subject. But that then started to start conversations. I reached out to lots of people, um, had great sort of coffee chats and conversations um, with people that had entered the industry from so many different avenues. And you start to realize that everyone has their own personal story and it's going to be different for everyone. But I think, yeah, networking, attending conferences, there are so many amazing free um, conferences and networking events, especially around London, if you're London based, that you can get involved with and just start having conversations with people. Um, and once you've made that connection, it makes it sort of so much easier down the line to sort of oh I know this person oh yeah I know them too and and um that's yeah that's sort of my advice and and how I personally got into health tech um and I had a, a clinical background before um and sort of had seen the inefficiencies and wanted to learn more about the innovations in the sector that would um help to innovate the NHS and um healthcare in in the future yeah, Bal, how, how, how about you? I know you've come from um, a very different background from me. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question because it's, it's firstly so unique to every individual, as you said, but you've got people coming from such a wide, wide range. So at one end, you've got clinicians or people from clinical backgrounds looking to maybe leave the NHS, find something in, a, in innovation or in health tech. And then at the other end, you've got people that are maybe in more skill-based roles in fields, like field agnostic roles, and they're potentially looking to find a career that gives them more meaning in their work and more fulfillment. Um, and I come closer to that end, I'd say. I'm a scientist by training. I'm a chemist, um, but I'm a communicator. And that that's the main thing that I would describe myself as. And I always knew that I wanted to communicate science to the world. For me, it's vibrant, it's exciting, and there's so much cool innovation happening in it. And I wanted to play a role in helping people be aware of that. Um, and working in health tech, I get to use all the skills I learned as a scientist, such as research, being able to communicate with different audiences, knowing how academics think, knowing what the university system looks like in this country how to research things, when to trust things. Um, I get to use all of that, um, but I get to work with amazing health tech companies um, that are all trying to change the world. And that's a pretty wonderful feeling when you're describing the work you do and giving you that meaning and drive behind it. Um, but yeah, from this article perspective, I think it's a really nice place to start because it reminds people to define 
why they might want to change their career, why they might want to consider a career in health tech or med tech, how they might go about meeting the right kind of people um, and what to say when they get in front of them. So if it is something that people are thinking, I think it's a good place to start. It's really accessible um, with some really nice sort of takeaway actions there as well. Nick, what about you? Let's pass the mantle on. My background's in physics and then, you know, I've, I've come the long way around, probably all, at least when I look at the list on the article, and I think the article's interesting, but I probably, you know, start with your why. When I started working in life sciences, my why didn't really exist, or at least it did. I just didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I'd, I'd been in the industry for about four years that my brain sort of properly engaged with, you know, this is why I'm here. This is why I do it. This is why I do it in the sector that I do it. And I just had the balance of, you know, when I finished university, I had enough of data and was like, I definitely don't want to do that anymore. Um, I want to deal with people and I want to, you know, I want to spend my time around people and problem solving um, and kind of found, fell into the best of both worlds. Um, uh, for anyone that falls into executive search and says that was the career plan, um, you'd be the the only one. So, um, and let me know if you are. Um, but I... Yeah, I, I I would probably say, you know, just start having conversations. Like they're they're the most powerful things. Whenever we have any problem or any challenge within our business, the first thing we go is just go and talk to people. Go and talk to people. Um and I think there's something there for people that have come from a scientific side in general. You're kind of taught from an academic perspective is go and research your problem. Um and there was a CEO of a business that once told me, but see, I don't want anyone to do that. I don't want people to go and research. I want people to go to the fastest route to getting a solution to your problem, which is go and talk to someone go and ask someone for help. Um, and I think that's a lot of what sits in here about, you know, the power of networking, attending conferences. And there is so much you can do. Just just go out there and talk to people, which isn't easy, particularly if you're not, a, you know, if you're a grad coming into the sector, but just go and talk to people. I think Indy's testament to the fact that um, talking to people, like being aware that people are always wanting to give advice and help. I know that so many of the conversations you've started have resulted in, actually sitting down with people and having a coffee and getting career advice and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and and on Nick's point there as well, one thing that I think um, is really important to stress is sort of by nature of, of the health tech industry, the people co- like people collectively are there because they want to help other people. They have a common passion for doing exactly that. And something that I've really found is people are so willing to sit down give up their time to you to answer whatever questions you may have and give you some career advice and and make those connections that might make that easier for you to enter the industry. Um, So, yeah, for people that are a little bit apprehensive um, about sort of speaking to people they don't know and sitting down and putting themselves out there to have those conversations, I'd say definitely just go for it. Henry, you've got the most eclectic career of all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Find stuff you like doing and then go and do that. That's my only career advice. Uh, that's that's it. And on the flip side of that, just um, what I find really useful when talking to people about what they might want to do, finding what you don't like doing is just as important. Do less of that. <laughs> yeah, my six months as an estate agent is testament to that. Um, <laughs> before we go down that horrible rabbit hole, let's move on to our second story. 
Our second story comes to us from BioPharmaDive, and they are talking about the five questions facing emerging biotech in 2023, something close to pretty much everyone on this podcast's heart. Nick, five questions facing emerging biotech in 2023. What are your your predictions for the next 12 months? So so I think, and this maybe goes both far-reaching for biotech talent and across the board, I think in many sectors, but specifically in in our space um, is that, and it was quite actually in, in the article from John Norris, who um, says you need to pick the best one. And I think that's how everyone is going to play, that they're going to pick one and be aggressive. And that means doubling down on the talent that you've invested in. That means doubling down on the businesses that you're involved in. I think everyone's going to get laser focused, whereas 2021 was a bit of what well, anything will do, um, a sort of spray and pray methodology I think, in terms of some investment uh, organizations I worked with hashtag spray and pay yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly um but I th- yeah I think everyone is going to be more disciplined in in investing but it means that they're doubling down on the businesses that they've already put money into um they pick their best and they they play aggressive for those looking for um you know back back the right horse um rather than all of them so yeah it's been I think 2022 was a tough year for biotech, which is obviously health tech's kind of pricier cousin. And with less money sloshing around, you know, biotech has faced lots of stress. We've seen companies downsizing, raising bridge rounds. We've seen companies closing down as investments slow down. And obviously with a recession potentially looming, um, you know, 2023 might not be smooth sailing, even if even if the general consensus is that everyone is feeling more positive than last year. Um, I think the article does a really good job of delving into these questions. And like you say, the idea of kind of picking a horse and that sort of thing is is really, really good. Um, What I found really encouraging was that whilst investment has slowed over the last year, investors are being more diligent about what and who they invest in. And I think the article makes a good point of this, that investors are looking you know, for companies who can prove clear traction over the last couple of years, rather than being just an incredible idea. Um, And, you know, it takes a lot of time and money to take a therapy from research to market, like biotech is time consuming and money consuming. Um, So companies that can prove this and prove that they're actually doing really, really good work are more attractive than ever. um, And obviously demonstrate less risky returns to investors. Um, so I think this is encouraging, not only from an investment point of view, but also that's going to mean that it's going to benefit more people. Because if we're backing the companies that are um, doing the best work, um, then hopefully those therapies and um, and other things, processes, um, will get to get to benefit people more quickly. So I think that's what's exciting to me about what the future holds for biotech and in particular 2023. I think the big mark is going to be IPOs this year, right? We saw 180 in 2020 and 2021, and then 22 last year. Um, Obviously. Absolutely mad. Yeah. Pandemic years were an anomaly, but that is a huge, huge drop off. Um, And I think whilst you can't Mm. peg the entire industry's performance to one metric, it will be really interesting to see where we are in 12 months time to be fair, where we are in nine months' time um, with IPOs. Nick, do you, have a, do you have a view on that? Do you think we're going to see an increase in IPOs this year or do you think it will be a kind of a, a steady gain rather than a massive jump? Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely not going to go back to 2021 and I think that's a good thing. You know, the, set, the sensible individual in myself is like, right, that's not good. Um, and and we've, we've had a sort of 
you know, 2021 was filled with a really diverse set of investors. There were a lot of people in that were putting money into the space, and that goes, you know, all the way through to to the general public putting money into life science investments when when it's a relatively unknown space and field for you know your ability to do research and actually understand what you're looking at. I think it's quite hard for a layman um, to put money into into companies. Um, really important that that does open up as an exit possibility for private investors because it then keeps the price fair for um as and pharma companies that want to make their acquisitions but to be honest i i yeah i'd be really surprised if it's above north of 60 in 2022 and i think anything further than that will probably uh, sorry 2020 it'll be north of 60 in 2023 uh and i think that would be the sign of a, of a successful year from in terms of ipos but almost less concerned about it everyone seems to be moving back and investor wise moving back to where they sit um instead of being drawn into earlier and earlier organizations yeah i think i think the ipo market will open back up but it's going to be gradual it's not going to go it's not going to go at rocket speed and i don't think it should i think it should stay steady i think it should be a good exit opportunity but it shouldn't be overcooked from the high-tech world of biotech ipos then through to our next story Uh, less high-tech for this one. NHS must speed up move to digital communication after patients miss letters due to Royal Mail strike. Uh, this is coming to us from iNews. Uh, um, I'll take this one. I'll start on this one. It's, uh, it's, a cl- <laughs> it's a cliche to say it's 2023 or it's whatever year, but... The, when I was when I was seventeen, I bought possibly the worst the worst car that's ever existed. So this is nearly twenty years ago. Uh, it was a uh, a P green Mark One Ford Fiesta. It had four gears. It had one window that worked, uh, and it regularly just started smoking for no reason. It cost me forty eight pounds, uh, which I haggled down from fifty because because I thought I was Del Boy. However. When I had to get it serviced, I used to take it to this middle of nowhere garage in the, the countryside near where I lived. Uh, lived. It was basically a shed um, with a bloke who just chain smoked roll ups while fixing your car. They, that garage, could text me to tell me when I had my appointment or when my car was ready automatically. That guy who was 85% tobacco and the other 15% just engine grease, he on his own could tell me that I needed to come and collect my car. My GP practice can't do this properly. Actually, to be fair, my GP practice can do this properly because they use Accurex and that works. Recently, I have had a referral into secondary care and the, the, it, it's just a nightmare. So it is, it's beggar's belief that prim- Accurex have come into primary care. They've got 98% coverage across GP practices. And I know that secondary care is a significantly more complex market. I 100% understand that. It was My job was taking primary care products into secondary care for a long time. I get it. But if primary care can now do this reasonably well, we need to start ensuring that secondary care is doing it because the cost of missed appointments is huge. There are people who cannot access, for whatever reason, a phone, whether that is related to the fact that they just don't have a phone, which there are still, I think I've read about three or 4% of people do not have access to a mobile phone in the UK. Um, or for other various other accessibility reasons, can't access it. That's fine. But a letter should not be the first thing we're going to. There are so many more efficient ways of communicating with people. Um, 
oh, it it's a little heartbreaking. It's a, it's very disheartening to see this happening because the process once you miss two appointments is you get fed back into primary care. It's so inefficient to get someone who's finally got a GP's appointment. They get referred to a cardiac specialist, say, and then the letters arrive the days after their appointment. So they go down as a DNA, did not attend. And then they have to go back to their primary care clinician who feeds them back into secondary care, who then aren't able to get the letters to them in time. It's, I mean, we've solved perpetual motion if we ever need a, a, like an eternal energy source. Just just follow the letters. But <laughs> it, uh, genuinely, a little bit of it breaks my heart. Yeah, I. it's so frustrating. It's not fair. People do deserve better. And I think also coupled with waiting lists at the moment and things like, I know people that have got a physical letter on a magnet on their fridge for an appointment in 18 months' time. Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. Because they're also, you know, they weren't the only ones to, well, you knew Royal Mail was striking. Why don't you just use another supplier? Why don't you use someone else to put, put the post on there? Yeah. Like, if, if you're a company, just wouldn't be deemed acceptable to be sat there waiting on a supply chain that's not going to turn up. I wonder how much of that's down to procurement and what they've, how they've kind of organised for letters to be sent out with the various systems they're using. Um yeah, it's it's tough. I would also like to point out that this article has the the most you've missed the point paragraph, three paragraphs in, which is they're talking about, you know, the CWU, the Communication Workers Union being on strike and the NHS is facing calls to speed it up. And then it goes into some Christmas cards that were sent at the start of December and letters posted at the end of November have only landed on people's doormats this week. I understand as though this is the big, that's the big story there. Like you didn't get the card from your great aunt. Anyway, it's not something we're going to be able to fix on this podcast. It is, it's one of the most frustrating things for me because this could be such a transformative thing to introduce for so, so many people, the vast majority of people, 96, 97% of people. And it's happened in primary care and it has to happen in secondary care because A, the cost per appointment is so much higher and B, the cost of missing those appointments can very often, both in terms of health outcomes and just general mental well-being, be significantly higher. So it needs, to my mind, to be prioritised. I think that's probably enough about the failures of analogue communication. Let's move on to another biotech story. Our penultimate story is from MIT Technology Review. And this is that biotech startup says mice live longer after genetic reprogramming. Um, Nick, you work extensively with uh, with biotech uh, companies, albeit not in the um, not in the field of mice. The, ooh, field mouse, nice. Uh, not in the field of mice. Um, what are your thoughts on the uh, the reprogramming of a mouse to live a little longer? Uh, it's pretty cool, huh? Just is it? Is it not? <laughs> I don't know. I have no. I have no opinion. What's the, besides, the, there is one. Like there is a. There is a line on the article that goes. One risk is that the powerful programming process can cause cancer. So it's like right. Okay. So maybe. And, and don't get me wrong. We're, we're a million miles away from where we need. Where we. Where it could be possible to translate it back into human health. But why is it not cool? The other risk for anyone who's seen the cartoon Danger Mouse is that they accidentally create a mouse who wants to take over the world, um, which I think is is worth bearing <laughs> in mind. That was my second thought. As as far as I'm concerned, any rodent living longer is something I want to avoid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is not what we should be aiming for. It's interesting because 7% longer is not an insignificant amount of time. That's the amount of time they've averaged 
to increase a mouse's lifespan by. And that's if you take the average human lifespan, add seven percent to it, you're getting a good extra chunk of life. I, I have to say, I think for me, I initially there's got to be massive cosmetic sort of yeah. potential here. I feel like that's potentially where this will go first. Think anti wrinkle creams, longevity of skin cells. Um, things like that. And obviously there's a huge market there. I don't think this is necessarily going to be everyone's going to live forever in the next a couple of hundred years. Um, but I think, yeah, that we could potentially see it trickle into some um, real commercial value there. To clarify, that's cosmetics for humans and not mice. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, primarily Fine. humans was what I was thinking there. Everyone deserves a glow up, right? So let's let's give it to the mice too. Sure, <laughs> they do. There's a little line in here about how they're using it on dogs as well. So it could be a real whole avenue of pet longevity. But that's another wormhole. Yeah, that is a, that is a big wormhole. Um, on a serious note, though, how does how does the technology behind this work? Belle, you are, you're my go-to person for understanding biotech. Um, so, yeah, this, this is really interesting technology, actually, because it's based on gene therapy, um, which is basically when you tweak the genes in cells um, in order to get them to do a different thing. So we see a lot of gene therapy um, in the immunotherapy space, getting getting cells to maybe recognize cancers and, and fight them that way. Um, but here you're tweaking a gene to be younger. Um which is, which is really, really interesting. And this is not the first time this has been done. So this research has been carried out on, on single cells before. So we know that it is possible to do that to cells, but this is the first time that this has happened specifically in mammals, um, which is why obviously this is exciting because when you think about genetic engineering, one of the first things people think is, can it make me live longer or even forever or anything like that? Um, so yeah, as, as Henry said, it's a 7% increase in life, which just to put it into the context of these mice, you know, it was these mice that they experimented on were the equivalent of a 77 year old, um, if you were to like make that equivalent to human years. And after being kind of treated with this gene therapy, they lived for double as long. So instead of living an extra nine weeks, they lived an extra 18 weeks, which is significant in like 7% seems like a small number, but 18 versus nine weeks sounds pretty massive actually. Um, and you know, as I said earlier, whilst the idea of rodents living longer is pretty horrific, this does raise an interesting question in terms of how we were to apply this to humans. And I know Nick quipped that there's a line in here saying that it could cause cancers, but that's really important because these therapies are not known. We don't know how they act here. And even in these rodents, the company that have carried out this research don't yet know why this effect has, has happened. They don't know if it's because um, there was like an actual change in a single organ or group of cells in these mice that then meant longer living. Like, did it mean that their heart worked better or something? Or was it just sort of an overall rejuvenation effect, which is the sort of thing people would immediately jump to when they hear this news? Um, so, yeah, I think if we were to look into our crystal ball um, for like, you know, in the future and think about what this might look like on humans, the clear questions I'd want to know is, are we actually providing people with the same or a better quality of life? Because if we can do that, that's that's really exciting. Um, but if we're just extending life and potentially introducing things like cancers, then that somewhat removes the charm of it. Um, but, yeah, I think I think Indy's really raises a really good point here that I think the most interesting place for this technology is 
where we're seeing its use in sort of specific medical conditions or even on specific organs. So yeah, aging is a great one. They've mentioned in this article that a research group is working on using it for blindness. Um, but I think these sort of specific things where they're very clear what they've changed and what the effect of is where we'll see the fruits of this research first, personally. Yeah, definitely. That or if you have a, a, a peaky looking mouse at home that you want to kind of just extend the life of for companionship related reasons. Um, all right. Also gene therapy because it costs like millions of dollars or millions of pounds. So imagine just being like, my mouse is a bit peaky. That'll be three months. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Let's move away from uh, immortal mice uh, onto our final story this week. Final story this week uh, it comes from UK-CPI, my favourite of the CPI-related websites. Uh, one in five UK <laughs> health tech SMEs head to the US for product launch. Pigeon has put uh, that by law in the UK, you can't present a Series A pitch deck in health tech without talking about your US expansion. I don't think I've ever seen one. Indy, uh, you wanted to talk to us a little bit about the move, the great move across the Atlantic for Series A companies. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I'm not completely surprised by this article, although obviously it is somewhat disappointing as someone who is passionate about the UK health tech scene. But I think what this article picks up um, really, really well is the challenges for um, SMEs in terms of regulatory compliance Um and yeah, medical device compliance um, for entering the NHS um, and for sort of growth in the UK. And essentially, it's easier in the US. Um, Nick, you might know a little bit more about this than, than I do. But yeah, I mean, the article points out sort of 70% of SMEs find the regulatory um, environment in the UK really challenging. Um, and we see some of that with, with our own clients. And it's not easy um, and it can be a real barrier to the NHS, even though sort of SMEs in the UK do see that as their primary target. I mean, it's local and they have sort of a good knowledge of how to proceed in a reasonably sized article. But yeah, procurement and NHS adoption is difficult. And USA is sort of increasingly seen as a strong target, sort of with a slightly more stable regulation and good investor engagement. So yeah, it's, it's, it's unsurprising, but it's, yeah. A little bit dis disappointing, I think. And I think as well, I mean, I know examples such as Fora Health have sort of done it the other way around. They've gone and built their user base um, and made a real impact in the US and then are circling back around to the UK, having already made establishments um, in the US. And, and perhaps that's a more promising outlook. But yeah, it would be nice to see that more UK SMEs feel confident about growing in the, in the UK first. Um, I'd be interested to hear other other people's opinions on this as well. Yeah, maybe um, my only thought, and going back to the regulators piece, is the Swiss market have taken on the approach of accepting both the FDA and the EMA in terms of uh, regulators. Should, surely we should just follow suit, right? Surely there's enough confidence in between both that we should just go, like, either one, right, if you're good to go, let's move and let's move at pace or make it as simple and as easy as possible and create that. Um, you know, just remove barriers, remove obstacles that make it harder for, for no real reason um, and 
well, at least that I can see. Maybe the MHRA really disagree with me. Um, but why not make it as simple as possible? That's not to say that FDA and CE marking is simple anyway. Like, it takes years. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I don't know this, but I think one of the reasons that people are looking to the American market first is because FDA is, is something obviously, which is recognized. They, people know that it's a lengthy process, that it's high, heavily regulated. Um, but also, once they get through that, they can pretty much start making money straight away. Whereas in the UK, going through that regulatory process first, and then still needing to be adopted into, into the NHS or into private healthcare, which is not as big over here, though I think we'll see changes in that sh- shortly, um, means that when they are, pl- you know, when you're planning out investment and you're you're saying, okay, we'd like investment for two, three years, and two years out of that are going through regulatory processes, that doesn't give you very long to actually start making money and moving to the next stage as well. It does also, um, and probably the other group that's in that, and Pepe was the other one of the other companies in the articles that we looked at this week. Um, they focused on the UK, and of course that's into just into um, companies as a offering for employees is that we are yeah there's also that side of the market that actually you know yeah the nhs is very complicated to get into but there's tons of potential there um but there is also just a big consumer demand and a big um opportunity for people to work with companies in the uk that are very pro engaging and looking after the well-being of their employees and actually there's there's probably a very easy market to get into for anyone that's trying to build a market share or or test a product into an industry because we in the UK, I think by and large, want to proactively engage with employee wellbeing, which is maybe slightly different in the US. I think it's a really good point though. I think one thing, I agree with Indy in that it's it can feel disappointing that the UK's, not necessarily approach, but the backlog in the UK means that it necessitates that some companies have to look abroad. I think they always will anyway, just because of market size. The The US healthcare market is worth about $6 trillion. The UK healthcare market is worth about $120 billion. If you're, if you're not looking beyond your domestic market once you get to A and B, you're very unusual in that investors are going to want to see a return on their money. And unless you have something that is so hyper-specialized to the NHS that it doesn't have any applicability anywhere else around the globe, then it's unlikely you're not going to be looking at it. The other thing is that technology being taken global and being used in other places and iterated in other places with other audiences and going through different regulatory procedures can actually be a huge net benefit to the UK's own health kind of ecosystem. If we are the more people use stuff, generally speaking, the better the feedback on it, the better the product becomes. So it's it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is. it would be great if we could sort out the way in which kind of medical devices have to go through regulation in this country to maybe mimic, as Nick says, the Swiss model of taking both the FDA and the EU MDR uh, as, as valid. Because the US is always going to be the obvious commercial growth opportunity because size and scale and purchasing power right that we therefore should if we want to take the get the benefit or have the opportunity to get the maximum benefit as quickly as possible we then have to be the early adopter we have to be front of the queue to say look we'll try it we'll give it a go might not be perfect to start with but we'll try it and therefore we've got to in my opinion instead of waiting for three years down the line when the uk is finally semi-attractive because we've maximized our capability in the u.s um, 
I would argue that we need to we need to be there almost before it's approved. We need to be the test. We need to be the guinea pig. We need to be the one willing to you know roll up our sleeve and take the jab and give it a try in order to get maximum value from these products. Um, we should um, and and it trickles through across a whole host of things, not just um, health in the UK, but also significant impact on economics and jobs and and so forth. But you know, in my head, it's let's well let's be the innovator. Let's let's take on these products and be the testing ground for these products. And if they're successful in the UK, then they'll be successful in the US, and and be the validator for a lot of these organisations and for VCs. Um, but that requires, I think, significant change in the NHS, which I also argue has greater positive greater purchasing power than any healthcare system anywhere else. Um, and that we have an audience that wants to engage with this, that wants to improve what's going on. It's um, um, maybe you'd be hard picked to find a country that doesn't want to improve its health. But um, I think by and large, it's a pretty positive ecosystem here. Um, and it's, you know, it's also English speaking, so it translates very well to your next move into US commercial, commercial scale. Um, yeah. Sifted uh, published something this morning that says that you know, the UK is the second most attractive place in Europe to to set up a startup after Sweden, which is, you know, phenomenal. Um, I would love to see all the changes that you've outlined there, Nick, take place. I think there are there are huge both logistic and kind of economic barriers, but there's a really big emotive barrier to that in that whilst the NHS absolutely would love to be the, the test bed for things, the way that we look at the way that the NHS is kind of held in the national conscious. And this is not something I either agree or disagree with, but I feel it is reasonably based in fact, is that it is fairly sacrosanct. And it would be really difficult to introduce a US style approach or even a US set of um, regulations without there being some uproar about the privatization of healthcare. Um, That's always going to be this big emotional block for a lot of people, um, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, I'm... The UK excels in research and we have such a great plethora of of different amazing innovations um, that have a real potential. So Uh, that seems like as good a place to wrap up as any. Uh, Thank you for joining us on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast this week. Uh, Huge thanks to Belle and Indy and our special guest, Nick. Uh, You can find all of the stories we talked about at healthtechpigeon.com. And we'll be back next week with another special guest. (music) 